0: This is Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin in service to the Restorative Justice Ministry, meaning I serve in the prisons of the cities of Gatesville and Marlin. And here with me today is Renee Brown, Director of Counseling Services for the Catholic Charities of Central Texas. We're moving with a series of presentations for people who are incarcerated, who can hear us while they're there in prison, about how to get yourself ready and what to expect when you release from prison. For all the rest of us, I hope that this will be something that gives us some insights that if we run into people that are had been incarcerated, we might have a little bit better comfort level uh, with assisting them as as we allow ourselves to do that, uh, and also just to get a little bit of a sense of what it is like uh, to serve time in prisons. Um, today, we're going to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And before we get into the the meat of this, Renee, I did want to ask one kind of Umbrella question, because I know this is out there on the minds of a, of a number of people about PTSD in general. Those of us who are unschooled in the sciences of, of uh, helping people through counseling or psychiatry hear a lot of things about PTSD, how it happens, who gets to claim it, who doesn't get to claim it. Um, can you give me a little idea of of how it's seen in your field uh, about um, what is legitimate PTSD?
1: You know, it's really challenging to kind of define a legitimate PTSD. Um, we have our DSM-5, so that's the diagnostic manual for um, different mental health pieces. And it's interesting because the, the book will outline what the criteria is for a, for a mental um, illness. It could be depression, PTSD, et cetera. And what happens is clinicians often due to their own studies or their own backgrounds will kind of um, maybe put certain things in a box, so to speak. So there are clinicians who believe that PTSD um, is strictly for persons who have been in the military, Um, while for me personally, I usually attach PTSD to people who have not not only been in combat, but also people who, uh, like a woman who's been raped, she may experience PTSD symptoms after that. Um, Or perhaps a person who, you know, experienced a very traumatizing um, uh, world, uh, like like 9-11, you know, something like that. Um, so it just kind of differs from person to, from clinician to clinician. So there are some counselors, there are some uh, psychologists or psychiatrists who may identify PTSD just a little bit differently than others. Um, so we've had people come in before into our offices who have been identified as PTSD, but maybe we don't see it. Um, we've had other <clears throat> people who... Maybe it just looks like it's depression, but they've had trauma pieces. But we will send them to a psychiatrist or psychologist, and they come back and tell us that they've actually been diagnosed with PTSD. Um, prior to working at Catholic Charities, I worked a lot with refugees, and they often have PTSD symptoms as well. So, see, it makes it very challenging if. With different clinicians sometimes, and and the definitions, and the thought processes, and the personal studies that people do, so just know that when you're seeing a clinician, um, you may have to see a couple clinicians or a psychiatrist or a psychologist for a um, deeper diagnosis.
0: Thank you for that clarification. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of folks to at least maybe open their hearts to somebody, and whether. Uh, One clinician thinks that that person has PTSD, maybe another doesn't. I'm still the person that lives next door to them when they get out of prison. I'm still Mm -hmm. the person that's working with them when they get out of prison and they're hurting. And for all of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, that's one of our callings is to assist people to come to know him so that they might be healed as we all want to be healed as well. So I hope that's kind of the frame of mind we can put ourselves in, set aside the the differentials. But I did want to touch touch base on that because I know it's out there. So to begin with, what are the subtypes of post-traumatic stress?
1: Right. So... PTSD itself, and it's interesting because while uh, you were, we were chatting, I also looked up the definition because I love to always give the definition. Um, and it describes it or the, it defines it as a mental health condition that's triggered by a terrifying event, either experiencing it or witnessing it. And there's a variety of symptoms that can be, you know, um, experienced. But the four subtypes that they've identified that go along with PTSD are intrusive memories. So for an incarcerated person, you know, you may experience some memories from prison that just kind of float into the mind all of a sudden. Um, Negative changes in your mood and thinking. Negativity breeds negativity, bottom line. And when you're incarcerated, um, from what I observed as a visitor, from the, the experiences that my daughter shared, there's not a lot of positive things happening in prison. Thus, it's a very negative environment. So uh, symptoms of PTSD can be the, the negative um, mood and negative thinking. Another subtype is avoidance. And another is just the reactions that you can have physically and emotionally. So those are four subtypes of PTSD. And if you're experiencing one of those, two of those, or all of those, then it could um, be, you could be symptomatic for PTSD.
0: So with that mentioned, uh, what are some of the symptoms that would would maybe have myself say or if I'm the person in a formerly incarcerated person's life and and say to myself, hmm, uh, I heard that program and that sure looks like what?
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, for the person experiencing it and for the person observing, um, it could look like your loved one startles easily, maybe a loud noise startles them. Um, I know just from, um, talk when I would talk to my daughter on the phone, it's so loud, uh, in prison. And so sometimes just loud noises and this, these are, she experienced some of these symptoms as well. Um, so that startle easily, or maybe if you come up and touch them from behind, you know, they may jump. They just startle easily. It could be noises. It could be touches. It could be the phone ringing, just different little things like that could startle this person. Also, nightmares. Um, it's really interesting because Um, In talking earlier about combat soldiers, nightmares are very prevalent with PTSD, but it's the same for incarcerated people as well. So nightmares or night terrors um, could be something that you may experience or your loved one may notice, you know, like you're waking up in the middle of the night frightened, you know, having a nightmare. Maybe you need the light on like my daughter did. You know, um, I think that was her way of in her mind, I won't have a nightmare if the light is on, you know, so nightmares are an indication as well. Um, Invasive memories that are upsetting. I mean, think about it. Some of our memories are great, right? We can remember things and that memory feels really good. But if it's an invasive memory, and usually that's something you've tried to forget, and you just remember something that happened while you were incarcerated that was upsetting. Maybe you saw two people get in a fight. Maybe you were involved in a physical altercation. Maybe you saw somebody being, you know, raped in a bathroom. It could be a variety of things. Maybe um, just two people going at it and the things that they said. And that memory pops back. Um, flashbacks. Um, flashbacks can actually bring about intense feelings of distress. Um, I can remember Tierney sharing with me um, several times she would have a flashback of one of the people that she was incarcerated with was a lady that was struggling with schizophrenia. And the lady had an episode one day and went off on one of the guards and it was very frightening to her to see this. And she had compassion for this person with schizophrenia. Um, she under tyranny understood a little bit about you know mental health and mental illness, and so um, to see this person who had been in the bunk next to her losing it mentally and emotionally—did her schizophrenia—and then watching the guards try to, you know, uh, there's there's a word for it, and I'm losing it, but not so much take her down, but help you know get her under control mm-hmm. and those kind of things. Tierney would have flashbacks about that and it would really bother her and she would still worry about this person, this lady, and it would cause her like distress sometimes to the point where she was shaking. So you may notice your loved one, you know, and it almost looked like they're kind of zoned out a little bit. They and if they're shaking or they're sweating or they tell you they're in distress in some way, they may be experiencing a flashback. Um and, and then again, um, it could be those extreme feelings of distress. You know, Tierney was sharing with me in that moment, she could not help that person. And that was distressing for her. She had had so many conversations with this this other cellmate who was schizophrenic. And in that moment, Tierney felt so helpless that she didn't know how to help her. And of course, she can't get involved, you know, because that's the guard's job. And um, but it was so distressing for her. That she couldn't help and reach out to this person and so just some of those pieces can happen as well and loss of interest in life that's that's a common side effect too one of the symptoms that people often experience is they've kind of lost that interest in life Um, you get out of prison and you think oh everything's going to be back the way it was but you know, maybe you don't want to go to church. Maybe you don't feel like going to the movies. Maybe you don't want to go play basketball, you know, or football with your children or whatever. You've kind of lost that interest in life. Um, also, being detached from others uh, or feeling like you're emotionally numb, you know, um we talked in our session before about that reconnection and relationship, but often with PTSD, people detach from others. They're afraid to get emotionally connected again. I don't want to be hurt. What What if I go back to prison and, and then I'm lost again? I don't have this relationship. So if they seem somewhat detached, if you don't feel like they're connecting with you emotionally, um, that could be a symptom as well. Um, or if they're emotionally numb, let's say their child is crying on the floor, but it's not, it's not moving them in any way. Maybe they're not moved to help. Maybe they're not moved to feel anything about it because they've numbed themselves emotionally. They don't want to feel. It hurts to feel. Um, also, um, they may avoid feelings. Um, they may avoid things that remind them of prison. Um, Tierney doesn't watch anything that has to do with prison. She doesn't want to watch any movie about prison. She doesn't want to hear, like, a country song about prison. I mean, you know, I mean no, she avoids those kind of things. And so avoidance of the things that would remind you of prison. Um, it's really interesting because, like, there's certain clothes that she will not wear. Um, she has a job now where she has to wear, like, work boots. She doesn't like doing that. Um, there's little certain foods that she won't eat because she had to eat them over and over. She doesn't do that. Um, so there, there's all these different things that you may find that your loved one is avoiding because they don't want to have those feelings, again, that they experienced in prison.
0: As I'm listening to you talk, it seems that uh, much of what happens to the incarcerated that moves them into the category of PTSD certainly would be the same for the victims of crime as well. The mm-hmm. victims of crime are, have a whole lot of these same things that that the crime against them has has created within them, and then the PTSD symptoms start popping up for all the rest of us who are trying to be nice to people, aware and sensitive to how other people are, are, are going through life. Again, let's say it's my neighbor, it's a coworker, whatever that might be, whether it's a post-incarcerated person or a victim of crime. And I'm hearing this program and I'm paying attention to what you're saying. And I'm saying to myself, boy, so-and-so sure looks like that, sounds like that, acts like that. Um, I think it can feel awkward. Um, you know, the there the stigma of being diagnosed mm-hmm, with PTSD mm-hmm. now you're a deranged you know person that's th- that's a threat to everybody but that's that's not always going to be the case certainly by and large it's not the case so uh, i guess uh, what i'm getting to is what do i as a person of goodwill how do i put myself in a position to to reach out and say i'm here to help you because i've mm-hmm. noticed whatever it is the symptoms are that they've noticed
1: sure i th- i think it's about you know validating feeling always, you know, expressing care and concern, you know, I care about you, I love you, but these are some things I'm noticing, you know, and, and really be able to give examples. Don't, I mean, we never want to tell people, well, this is what you need to do, or making it, making this person feel like um, they're being bad, they're a bad person. It needs to be a very loving, caring conversation in which you say, "Hey, I've noticed that, you know, when when our son was crying, you there was no affect. I didn't see anything on your face like concern or love. I didn't see it there, and you didn't reach out to him, you know. And I've also noticed that sometimes you see dis, seem distance, distant, um, or maybe you've noticed that." That they startle easy, you know, pointing them at those things out to them and and giving them actual examples of the behavior, right? Not just you did this, you did this, you did this, but just pointing out some of these things. And like, you know, what do you think about that? Asking them like, well, what do you think about that? Do, are you noticing that you're doing these things? And if they say, yeah, I really am. I, I do feel frightened sometimes. Or, yeah, I do feel like I'm detached from the kids. Then then you, as their loved one or friend, whatever, you know, you can be like, you know, maybe you ought to consider, you know, seeing a counselor or a therapist so you can work through some of these things. Um, but I always think it has to be in a loving way. It can't, it should never feel like you're attacking the person, you know, validating their experience. I And not saying I understand or I know, I know people will go, I know what that's like. Well, no, you don't. If you've never been to prison, you don't know what it's like, right? Um, And so it's just that validation of I'm sure that had to be challenging. I know that had to be hard for you. You know, those kind of things. Not that you know what it's like to be in prison. Not that you understand what prison's life is like. If you've never been there, you don't know what that experience it is. But we can be empathetic. And, and I know that had to be challenging or it had to be so cha- – even take the note out. It had to be challenging for you to be locked up for three years without choice, without decision making. I'm sure you saw some horrific things happen in there. And then just really encouraging them to get some mental health help.
0: You do that as a person of goodwill mm-hmm. and the person that's affected isn't ready. So sure. you get back in your face, stop picking on me, I'm mm-hmm. I'm not ready to do that. For a lot of folks, that can be the end of any attempt that they'll ever do again to reach out and help somebody. So let's just say that it's, you know, a fairly high probability that you may get a rejection statement from mm-hmm. somebody when you try to reach out. For people who are trying to care, what would you say to them to, to stay persevering in that? What, you know, how do you, how do you keep your courage up to, you know, to keep on caring?
1: Right. So... The the challenging part is, is it shouldn't feel like nagging because you're not going to get anywhere with nagging. Right. And it's also challenging as well, because this person has responsibility for self. So as the outsider, you know, looking in and seeing things, we can only go so far. And then it's about personal responsibility. Um, I think especially as parents or if you're in a wife, you know, we we take on a lot of responsibility for our loved ones, you know, or vice versa if it's a husband. But the point is, is at some point, this is about the personal responsibility of this person as well. So you can encourage them, like I see you're really struggling. You know, maybe uh, consider talking to a pastor. Sometimes that's an easier thing for people to do as well before they move on to therapy. There is a trust often with people that they'll talk to their priest or a pastor. And then from there, that pastor or priest may encourage them to get mental health counseling. So that can be a great avenue for people to try as well with their loved one. And then just remembering from your side You know, this person has a responsibility for mental health. They have a responsibility to get better. And then I may just have to use boundaries for myself um, and and put some boundaries in place. Like, well, if you're not going to get, you know, if you're not going to work on this, that's fine. But these are some boundaries that I'm putting into place. So.
0: so I've received my loved one back from from prison, or it's my neighbor or my coworker again, as I keep saying, because I, you know, these are the different ways that we're likely to actually run into folks after they've been incarcerated. And I'm used to daily life, and the things of daily life are there for me, and they're not a big deal. Or the ones that are, I'm already working on them. What are some of the everyday occurrences that people who have PTSD that, that might affect them that the rest of us might say, well, what's the big deal? Or or why is that affecting you?
1: Sure. It, and it's interesting because it can be very va- uh, varied from person to person. But, you know, when we were talking in our other session, something as simple to us as going to Walmart, you know, I'm going to Walmart to pick up some groceries and other stuff I need, you know, for the person with PTSD, all the noises, all the people, uh, children yelling, you know, um, all of that can set off anxiety for people. Um, For a person, it could be um, being in traffic and that feeling of being trapped. You know, I can't escape this. I'm stuck on this highway. You know, what do I do? Um, Riding buses. You wouldn't think that that, but... I've had uh, clients before, like, getting on the bus seemed traumatic with all those people. And it stops and it goes and people are getting on and people are getting off. And you don't really know who that person is. You know, is this person getting on somebody that's going to hurt me or not hurt? So it's a safety thing. So it's so interesting that there's a variety of things that can actually trigger people who have... Um, experience trauma or PTSD. It could even be a person. You know, if if you were in prison and you saw two people fighting, a person that even resembles either one of them could trigger, you know, that for you. So triggers can be so many different things. Music is sometimes a trigger. Um, seeing things in TV shows, um for example, my daughter doesn't. She doesn't watch prison shows because there's so many pieces in there that remind her of events that she experienced. So she refuses to watch them. So just some things like that. Even foods could be a trigger.
0: Now, let's say I identify that with the person with whom I'm involved, and this is this is for uh, victims of crime as well who are suffering sure. from PTSD too. Um, what's a kind of I have this in my toolkit of things to say when I notice that the person that I'm trying to reach out to, whether it's family or friends or or acquaintances, whatever it might be in relationship terms – you know, what, what do you have ready to say? I mean, is it literally something like, well, gee, Renee, I, I see this. Um, I, I think we've talked about that's one of your triggers. Um, maybe it's time for us to do this.
1: Right. So having some coping skills in your arsenal can be helpful. And this is why going to therapy can be so beneficial because a therapist can actually help you put together a variety of coping skills that can help you. Um, I'm a fan of deep breathing. I think we did that before. Um, We talked about that in one of our earlier sessions with kiddos. Uh, People don't think that deep breathing works, but it does, and it has to do with the science around the brain. Our brains are constantly going. We don't take in enough oxygen, right? And when you're scared or you're anxious, you're taking in less oxygen. So being able to stop and count to 10, you know, deep breathe uh, in through your nose for like a count of 10 And out your mouth for a count of eight to 10 can be helpful. Do that several times. Um, If you can get in front of cool air, like uh, for my daughter, she will literally, she had an anxiety attack at work the other night and she got in her car and turned the air conditioner on and was sipping water. So sips of water can kind of help because it's the movement. It's the rhythm. You're just kind of sipping. And sipping, it's almost like we're rocking. If you could see Father Harry and I, we're rocking our heads right now as I'm saying that, you know, and getting kind of that air blowing on her face. Those are some things. There's also um, a coping skill that we do with people and it involves like your senses. And so you literally are like five things I can see. So like if I were doing this right now with Father, I can see Father Harry, I can see the mic in front of me, I can see my computer in front of me, I see the door, and then it's like four things that I can hear. Well, I can hear my voice coming back at me. Um, Earlier, I could hear music, I could hear the crunching of my water bottle. So we've done five things we can see, four things we can hear. Three things that I can smell. Well, I can smell my shampoo. I can smell my perfume. And right now that's all. But you see what I mean? So you're going, you're using your senses and you're going to identify five, four, three. And then two, um, after smell, it's usually two things that I can touch. So right now I feel my bottom in my chair. I feel my feet on the floor. And then one thing that I like about me, and that's that I'm friendly. And so... What will happen is by going through that process, you're going to feel your anxiety level hopefully going down. You're going to feel more calm. And it's just a way, a great way to get grounded back into the here and now.
0: Which then I would add as a priest, as a practicing Catholic, the person after that hole. Process can then say, "Glory be to the Father, yes. to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit," and and then thanks be to God mm-hmm. because you've now already begun to realize the effects of relief that 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 uh, toolkit just mm-hmm. brought you, and then you give thanks to God for that.
1: Absolutely.
0: Now. Um, on our our last question here, we've got about three minutes to go. I'm, I'm here with Renee Brown, our Director of Counseling for Catholic Charities. I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin serving in the Restorative Justice Ministry. Um, and when all of that fails, uh, and I'm in a moment, and I'm fight, flight, or freeze. What, right. what does that mean?
1: So most people, when they're feeling um, distressed, you'll have a tendency to do one of these three things. You're going to want to either fight or you're going to want to fly. You're going to flight or you're just going to freeze up and know, not know what to do. And so what we want to be able to do is identify, like, which one of these um, are you? Um, for a lot of people, um, their go-to is just to freeze up. I don't know what to do. They're just kind of frozen in space. They don't know what to do. Other people will just flee. They're going to they're gonna f- leave their feelings. They're going to leave people, whatever. I'm going to walk away from this situation. I can't deal with it. While other people are going to maybe want to fight through it. And that can mean like arguing with self, arguing with others. Um, you know, they're just trying to fight their way through. And hopefully what you can do is not do any of them. And I was actually looking this one up because I wanted to be able to give you some um, better examples, but it's, it's our body's natural way of reacting. I mean, for most people, um, when we feel like we're threatened in some way, when we feel like we're having a panic attack, then it's one of these three things is usually the way that we, we cope and, um, Hang on, because I really wanted to give you the um, some of the um, acronyms and things like that behind them. But you know, just remember, look at you as a person, and what do you tend to do? How do you react? You know, what it what is it that you're doing? And so I pulled one up, one of my um, and. Mainly the flight, I think we we get. You want to escape all this that goes on. Freezing, I don't know what to do. But fighting is very interesting because fighting can mean physical and it can also mean um, physical with yourself. Like you're fighting yourself. You're fighting what happens in your mind and in your body.
0: Well, we thank you. We're out of time today, Uh, Renee. Thank you so much for all of this uh, good instruction and guidance for those who are dealing with PTSD and those who share that journey with them. We ask St. Dymphna, the patroness of those who need assistance with mental and emotional uh, issues, to pray for us, to ask our Lord to give us healing and peace.